and uh, um, he is a multi-talent person. He has done so many things. You can check his website and he will give you all the details later. And uh, I had to write the things down because he is he has so many business under his belt. So let me go and read. He's a business and organization development person. He's a coaching and mentoring specialized in human dynamics. He has done many keynotes, many master classes, and um, he blends business intelligence with parallel ideas from music. How fascinating is that? And his website is the Academy of Rock. He has also written books that are published from um, Rutledge and Bloomsbury, and the books are called Brain-Based Enter Enterprise, Leading Innovation, and Creativity and Enterprise. And I've read your website, you have studied philosophy, psychology, you have worked in pharmaceutical companies, you have such an eclectic background and CV. Uh, thank you very so much, and welcome to Peter Cook. Thank you very much, Janine. So, um, I have a few questions for you that I'm sure all our listeners would like to listen. Um, would you mind sharing with us more about your background and what exactly you do now? Okay. Well, going back to birth, when I was five, I wanted to be in the Beatles, uh, but there were no jobs, um, so that didn't work. And by the time I got to about 10, I wanted to be a scientist. Uh, so I'd always loved music, but by by the age of 10, I, re I was fascinated with science, had a chemistry set at home, and by the age of 16, I was absolutely fascinated with, with science and particularly chemistry and physics. And that meant that by the age of 18, instead of going to university, I, I went to a grammar school, but I was one of the few people that then went on to, to work, and I did a degree part-time for six years, and I worked in pharmaceuticals. I was very lucky because I worked for the Wellcome Foundation. People have views about pharmaceutical companies. They say they're mad, bad and evil. But the pharmaceutical company I worked for was like, rather like the sort of Bruce Wayne-inspired philanthropic uh, organisation in the, in the old style of companies like Cadbury and Pilkington. They did good work and they made money and all of the money was put back to profit. Uh, to charity, I should say. All the profits were put back to charity. So it was a really nice organisation to work with. And I spent time working on the first human insulin product uh, for, for them, so sort of bringing that to life, and also the first HIV AIDS uh, drug, which I'm very proud of. So my early life was spent sort of working on pharmaceuticals. I also was fascinated with business and management, so I started tutoring for a university because I figured out that management should be something that we should do just as well as we did pharmacy. And uh, eventually I became an MBA tutor for 18 odd years. So I worked in the pharma company for a long, long time, also worked in business schools. And eventually at the age of 34, I decided that uh, there was nothing more that I could write on my CV or uh, on my gravestone would have said he did more of the same. So I stepped out of that and uh, combined uh, you know, those talents. And I started a business called Human Dynamics, uh, which did organization business consulting. I had this penchant for music and over 25 years I've sort of gradually fused the three things I love which is science business and music together and started writing books and what have you and uh, once you write one book you realize you can write another one uh, so I've written a number of books I've been very blessed to have uh, the sort of interview with Richard Branson in the the one before the last one and the current book is about the sort of age of uh, brain-based enterprises, the fourth industrial age, where information is more valuable than brawn. I mean, uh, so we are currently at a moment where we're having to consider uh, 
whether we're going to fly around the world, whether we're going to carry on polluting the planet, whether we can find better ways to solve old problems. So all of this is terribly relevant. And I, I go to companies these days and I either do the sort of serious consulting with them to work out how to fix these wicked problems that we call them. Or sometimes if they have just the hour and they want me to sort of uh, fuse intelligence with uh, with music, I do seminars that blend ideas from business and management with parallel ideas from music. And that pretty well is my entire career summed up, really. So it's business, music and management, uh, but not necessarily in that order. And I have played with a few musicians, but not the Rolling Stones. I was just going to ask you that. <laughs> It, oh, that's it's, amazing. it's not on my bucket list at the moment, you know. Uh, but, uh, okay, and uh, so your your in your business is so merged with so many things, which is amazing because you have done all your passions and you merged them into something that inspiring, and uh, you are educating businesses that they can do better. Correct. Yes, that's right. I, I figured out that business management is so badly taught generally that you could fuse what Peter Drucker or all the great authors of business said, which none of my clients, well, not some of my clients, but a lot of my clients have all these books on their shelves about business, but they haven't read them. But they do know the words to Bohemian Rhapsody. And I figured out that if you could make business a bit more interesting, people would pay better attention to it because it is really important, actually. So that's what I do. I bring a bit of life to a dull subject. Um, like, I mean, lots of things like economics and business are considered dull, but to ignore them is to is to really, you know, to, to be stupid, actually. And so I, I try and bring life to important subjects that people find dull. Awesome. And Peter, like when you say Bohemian Rhapsody, how can we apply music or a specific song to to the business? Um, well, you can't actually. <laughs> <laughs> I should explain a little more. Um, yes, we could sort of choose a, a, a title of a song and try and bend it to fit a subject that we're interested in at the moment, which I do at the head articles. I do kind of I've just published an article called It's the End of the World as We Know It, but I feel fine, which is a song by REM. And I do have this unfortunate habit of doing that. But the more serious side of what I do is to blend musical concepts rather than just the lyrics or the meaning or the title. Um, that is quite fun actually and I, I do it's it's one of my faults is bending virtually everything in life into a musical title but it isn't probably the most important work that I do so for example in one of my seminars I would uh, perhaps talk about relevant psychological concepts I could demonstrate if you want uh, if that would be useful so yeah. I, I talk about cognitive dissonance and cognitive dissonance is when you know perhaps you're in a boardroom meeting and someone says something fanciful or unusual or creative and the boss doesn't really it doesn't sit in their mind as being a valid idea and the boss has many choices at that point to either listen really carefully which is the smart move or to dismiss the idea or dismiss the person um, which is where you know there's too much sort of uh, difference between what the person is saying what the boss thinks and that is actually that costs business billions of pounds so I sort of draw the parallel between cognitive dissonance when sort of ideas don't really accord with people's existing mindset. 
I draw the same uh, parallel with what, with what I call musical dissonance. I don't do big music lessons, but if I sort of demonstrate a bit of musical uh, consonance and dissonance to you, I happen to have this guitar here. Yeah! So if I sort of... So if I play you a bit of music, that I mean, I could really do the simple bit of consonance when music sounds sort of how it, you know, tuneful to our ear. It's often based on scales and like the major scale, which is do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. So people kind of, lots of songs are made of those notes. You just have to trust me on that in the major scale and if i played something to you uh, that's perhaps a little darker with a minor scale but it's still consonants i've got a piece of music here that i've written for ozzy osbourne's uh, uh, former guitarist bernie tolmay who's sadly died actually uh, not long ago if i could just get this up i'll play you a bit of live music and i'll sort of improvise to it but in a in a sort of way that is sort of basically consonant i hope that you'll like it in other words here we go. Oh, mistake. I should have pressed record button. I'll do it again. Sort of uh, that that sort of soloing I just did. Oh, thank you. Uh, that soloing I just did is sort of based in the minor scale and okay. one or two other scales, but it, yeah, it fitted the track more or less. Uh, yeah. There were no mistakes, in other words. But if I played something that was terribly uh, sort of dissonant, uh, that would be like sort of a lot of heavy metal is based on dissonant notes. Uh, the sorts of so like a disturbance. Yeah, the sort of so the sort of notes that summon up the devil, as it were. So if I sort of uh, gave you a little piece of this, did uh, also Brian Eno study this dissonance, right? Uh, some Brian Eno is based on dissonance. Some of the darker pieces are dissonant, actually. But if we go, if we come here for a moment. Oh, sorry. I haven't got any volume. There we go. That 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 note that I just was referring to constantly is what is known as the sixth interval. Uh -huh. um, there are 12 intervals in a, an octave without boring you rigid with music. And um, in any, uh, most, the Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Solar, to, uh, the Do, Re, Mi thing sort of uses eight of the 12 notes, but they go from one to 12. And the sixth interval is, uh, if you, you can look at physics graphs of how it sort of doesn't accord, it sounds evil. And if you look at 
heavy metal songs like that was the beginning of the black uh, the black sabbath by black sabbath um that uses the first interval the 12th and the sixth so it's sort of six 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 in a way um and in the 15th in the 16th century the catholic church tried to ban the sixth interval because they felt it was summoning up the devil so even without any knowledge of music people felt that somehow this note was it wasn't pop music, shall we call it. ABBA don't tend to use that sort of note in their songs so much. Um, so that's when notes jar on our mind. Now, the difference is, in music, you can make millions of pounds and dollars out of notes that don't work because it becomes what we call an earworm or a riff. Uh, but in, in business, when someone throws you out of the ballroom and says, get out, You've just lost billions of pounds, possibly, or it might be a rubbish idea. But nonetheless, I, I use this to teach business leaders to listen better. And that really is the transferable lesson there from that sort of brief detour we had on music. Uh, does that help a little to explain what I do? So it's, it's not just quoting uh, pop songs at people, although I do like to talk about things like uh, Britney Spears. Oops, I did it again. You know, businesses constantly repeat themselves when they should learn and do something different. So you can sort of make those silly references uh, yeah. to as well. Because it's like human nature. We stick with what's familiar and a new notion sometimes takes a few seeds to be implanted in our mind before we consider it. But the first is like resistance. So how do you, do you train your, um, your clients to absorb an idea and to work it on the moment instead of like rejecting it at first. What's the best attitude for somebody to, uh, to train them? Is like actually listen to an idea, see if it's a good idea or if it's a bad one. How do you do that? The quality that one needs, uh, in fact, I'll, I'll just go backwards a step first. You mentioned Brian Eno, and Brian Eno talks about the familiar and the unfamiliar. Um, the, the quality in music that is needed to create new music is to not be afraid of the unfamiliar and the relevant quality in business is to, to have an open mind, to, to have a lot of openness to listening to your own thoughts and those of others actually. So a great chief executive, which I've been privileged to work with some, they don't, they don't have a closed mind, so they're open to ideas wherever they come from. They still have to evaluate them to see if they fit uh, because the unfettered creativity also kills a business. You know, most businesses are not set up to do ambient soundscapes like Brian Eno. They're there to produce, you know, popular music that somebody wants to consume. But nonetheless, to have a difference, you need to introduce difference. And I think that's where the creativity comes in. And you need the receptivity and the sort of the emotional intelligence to listen to weird ideas that may not at first sound like they're uh, going to work and then develop them. So much creativity I find in business doesn't turn into innovation because the creativity is immature. It is just a really rubbish idea. Yeah. Uh, most creativity needs to be developed and worked up. So the first, sometimes the first thing I play on this guitar is good, but many times it isn't. Mm. But if you want to think of something new, you think that's not really not quite right and you keep churning it and churning it until it's right. And businesses do need to improve the ratio of their ideation to their innovation, which requires refinement, iteration, sometimes incubation. This is, none of this is new. Um, I wrote a book 25 years or so ago, maybe 20 years ago, and I borrowed from 1926 the ideas of a chap called Wallace, 
that talked about incubation and he said that sometimes this can be weeks, months or years that you need to put an idea down and it needs to be at its right time. So there's there's lots of transferable lessons. I could go on for hours, but I won't. But I think openness is the answer to your question. I absolutely agree. Because I believe also when we have a good idea and we share it, we can spread a million seeds. Some will flourish, some won't, and some will take more time. But we need different times to absorb an idea. And uh, And I absolutely agree with you. Good business should be open to new aspects and new feedback because it's a, a very fast-changing world. Yes, I mean the half-life of most products and even businesses is in sharp decline, and who knows what will happen from here on. We have agile. Being agile is no longer a luxury; it's it's a necessity. Yeah. And Paul, how did you decide to make the leap? into self-employment? Ah, well, I, I was lucky to have a job in HR, which I hated. Um, <laughs> I didn't hate it, actually. <laughs> but um, I found myself just doing more of the same. I spent, I took, I went out of science into HR because I figured out that would be, I'd be able to learn right across the business. And I did achieve that. So it was actually a good move. But after four years of doing that, I just figured out that I was doing the same stuff. And I decided that I wasn't meant to do that and it wouldn't, wasn't going to be on my tombstone that he repeated himself. So I stepped out um, quite uh, dramatically, actually. I didn't have much of a plan and started a life as a self-employed business person. It's not for everyone. Um, I threw myself in a ditch. My wife was having her first child. The HR department, when I left, I remember Val, the HR officer, saying to me, don't you think it's exactly the wrong time to be leaving because you're having a child together and isn't this irresponsible? And I did turn around somewhat arrogantly at 33 and I said, look, I figured out if I'm going to have, if I'm going to dig a hole, I, it better be a big one. <laughs> I, I don't quite know why I said that at the time, but it proved to be incredibly good because we threw ourselves into a ditch for eight, and I said that I would get a job after 18 months we had long conversations to make sure that it was our right decision. And I, if I didn't, if it didn't work out, I we had a sort of plan to go back to work. Um, but because I threw myself in that ditch, my goodness, I tried really hard to get out of it. I do know how people that are self-employed that, that do the same thing and then sit there going, I'm in a ditch. So it just doesn't work for everyone to do that. But I, I have, importantly, I had made the choice to start a business rather than being made redundant and then thinking, what shall I do? I think the self-determination that goes with entrepreneurship is terribly important. The things we decide to do, in other words, we often do very, very well. The things that are imposed upon us, we don't do so well. Very true, very true. But I totally agree with you that it's not for everybody because it takes a lot of being a self-employed, a creative person is basically living in fear and being okay with that. It's, nobody tells you what to do. You need to figure things out by yourself. But Absolutely, yeah. yeah you have yeah. the freedom to choose more of what you want to do. We still have to do things we want to do. It's necessary. Even Richard Branson says that you need to start with the things you want to do the least first. Oh, absolutely. I would agree totally. The easy thing to do is to work when, when a client or several clients are screaming at you saying they want stuff done. That's really easy to manage deadlines. Yeah. What's 
hard is doing something when no one's screaming at you to do anything. So I sort of have developed over 25 years the means to be busy when I don't need to be busy. I've talked to lots of people who are self-employed and they say, I, you know, I, I just can't get into it today. I'm going to do the ironing. I thought, well, no, you need to have something to do that's like eating the elephant. So I tend to write books when I'm not so busy. At the moment, I'm, I'm writing two or three books uh, because my work had been cancelled due to corona. So what do I do? Do I do the ironing or do I do something that builds something for the future? I'm going to do something like that, actually. And I might have some fun as well. And I'm, I'm, the garden will be done for the first time in five years. That's very good. We need to be self-disciplined. And also I had cancellations because of the virus. And now I am keep doing um, material to keep people, to help people to keep sanity during these crazy times because there's a lot of uncertainty. And I'm a therapist. <laughs> I struggle with anxiety multiple times a day because now we have plenty of time before you could get distracted with going to the gym, going shopping, going for a walk. Now we're stuck with our thoughts. So um, if I'm with mental health, think about people who don't have the tools to put those thoughts in a yeah. box. <laughs> and we don't need an anxious therapist. Yes, yes, absolutely. But it's also a very human reaction of uncertainty. I just have the tools on how to get over it. So, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a difficult time. But this shouldn't stop people to keep working and producing. It, the, the fact that I keep telling to my friends who have a self employed business is like it's not about you, it's about sharing and what you know how to do it, keep doing it. Because the world needs your special gift and your special talents. Paul, can I ask you if you can share with us uh, one on one on consultancy skills? Yeah, well, um, what I did, because I, ha I had been an internal consultant, but I didn't know how to do this on the outside. So when I started, I just devoured every book I could find. I went out and practiced on people for free uh, initially. Uh, I, I, I used to be a, a member of Amnesty International. I used to write letters and I went to the chief executive. Did he need any work doing for free? And he thought it was a joke. But in fact, we found something to do that would give me practice because I noticed that I'd been to lots of people who said, you know, you'll never get work until you've got experience. I thought, well, how do you get experience so you can get that work? So I, I sort of was quite inventive about that. Um, but uh, there are many ways to do consultation. There is the sort of uh, advisory side of it, which is the bigger consultants tend to tell people what to do. I don't believe that always works. Uh, they tend to have a template, in other words. They tend to say, you know, this is all our research and it says that you should do X. But most companies I've been around in 25 years are uniquely different. And therefore, it's really important, like a perfect therapist, to work on the individual client in the, around the particular context. So what I do is uh, what's called in the trade process consulting of understanding the client's deep needs, working out what it is they, the illness they've got or the opportunity they're seeking, working out what they perhaps tried before uh, so you don't repeat yourself, uh, working out what it is, you know, how much challenge they might want in the relationship and then getting on and delivering whatever it is you think it is. And that could be a whole series of things from sort of doing 
and desk interventions through to going in their organisation and poking around and then making sure that you've also clarified what it is they see coming out of it. And I often start with the end in mind of you know, why are we sitting and talking here? What is it we hope will be different or better or gone or whatever it is? And it can be hugely different. So I, I'm, I'm overall, compared with the large guys, a kind of design person. So I design a, a series of interventions to help a client reach the goal that they seek. And there's nothing wrong with telling them this is the answer. But I do find that some clients want actually to be in control of that answer and they don't necessarily take the advice much in the same way as people go to the doctors, are told to take pills and then they won't comply with the good advice of the doctors. We are actually quite suspicious of experts in all fields these days, which is a bad thing with my science head on. Um, but therefore, I think you still have to engage people so that they want to do the things that you perhaps have already thought about, you know, with, with a lot of experience, I do sometimes think I think they should do X. Um, but sometimes getting them to realise they need to do X is more important than saying you should do X, uh, it, much in the same way as, as therapy, really. I mean, I'm sure that may relate to your work in, in some respects. Yes. Yes, we don't like to be told what to do. We we like to understand what is the best in our in the highest our here highest interest to do. So if you do it, if you share with them what's the best for them, then they will be more open to. Because as human minds, we are like, don't tell me what to do. It's we don't want to be like a naggy mother or something. But yeah, so. I'm working with two organisations at the moment. Uh, one is involved with statistics, and they will have a completely different approach than another one that works in the field of gold mining. And um, they're an engineering company, and everything I do has to be fitted to the style and approach. You know, not just the content of what I do, but how I do it is as important. But to summarise the answer to your question, what is the elixir to life to being a consultant? It is really an old adage, which I think is still relevant today. Get up early, go to bed late and discover oil. Now, I don't mean you have to discover oil. I mean, find something that you do that's uniquely different that someone wants. We're all we can all do loads of different things, but it's got to be something different that someone wants or needs. I think that's the USP thing that people talk about in the world of business. But do get up early and do go to bed late and discover this unique thing, I think is a durable model of any self-employed entrepreneur or consultancy business. And learn all the stuff, actually. Learn your art so that you're good at it, actually. It's, it's taken me years to become good at this. I mean, it wasn't like I wasn't good at it at the beginning, but I'm better now because, it, you know, so I, I just devoured libraries of books, went and practiced on on clients that you know i weren't i weren't paying me and did loads of things i had the beautiful experience of having taught at the at a university the open university of doing workshops for people on a saturday morning so in a, now i look back i realize i had tons of actual experience but it just wasn't called the thing i was doing so mm. look around you loads of things that you can do that you are already doing that can be transferred to other contexts yeah, and uh, I have, I know for sure that 
what we still like to do is something that we used to love to do between the age of seven and 14. And that's something I discovered recently. And I was like, I always loved to talk and I always loved to have a bit of humor. And I've always been that as a kid. But then with adulthood, I was I thought I was supposed to be serious. And now I'm in the last two years, I've been discovering my gift. And it's like, I love to share. I love to teach. And, and it's the same you because like one of the questions I wanted to ask is like, um, what, how did you become a full-time speaker and writer? By accident is the answer, um, the short answer. But the detail is I wrote, a few, well, after I'd started the business, I thought I'll never have the lunch budgets that PricewaterhouseCoopers have. I'll never be able to go take people to the races and you know pour champagne down their necks or anything else one would do to try and win friends and influence people because I'm a small business. So I figured out I had to do something intellectual with my brain rather than throwing money at the problem. So I, I, I wrote an art, uh, I wrote a letter to a magazine, a HR magazine, so I was doing some research on creativity. Would anyone like to come and participate in that research? And I would send them a free copy of the report uh, sit down after I'd finished it. And I got no replies to that letter whatsoever. None. Uh, no one was interested. Although I did do the research because I tried another way to, to get at the company's own. So that, but that strategy didn't work. But I did get a letter from a publishing company, Gower, in fact, who are a major publisher, saying we'd like to have a book out of that. And I just phoned them up six months afterwards. So I've done the, the, the research paper now. Would you like to look at it? And would you? And after a few conversations, a contract arrived, and I found out that once you've written a book, people like you to read it out to them, and uh, not just read it out, of course, <laughs> but read it out with a difference. So then, sometimes my seminars don't have guitars in them, um, but yeah. But sometimes, well, everyone thinks that I turn up at companies, and they seem to think that I'm going to. Uh, you know, immediately produce guitar. But sometimes I, I, I find other ways to be to make business interesting, in other words. But um, the, the book led to the seminar. I just started doing this. And then I thought I'd better learn, you know, some of the art form. So I did some learning to improve myself and, and so on. And here we are now. So it was, it was an accident uh, in terms of the absolute moment. Okay. okay. And... Uh... May I ask you, what is your proudest moment? Um, can I have two? Of course, I'm here to wish. I was particularly proud to have been given the opportunity to work on the first HIV AIDS drug, uh, particularly so because my best friend at school, who's sadly no longer with us, just recently uh, he passed away after about 35 years of um, he himself at the time was an early uh, AIDS sufferer or HIV sufferer and we had the goal of getting that product to the market as quickly as possible rather like you know the corona situation I imagine that lots of things you know rules will be bent to get this out there for people but at the time we had no experience of making the product uh, or formulating it into a capsule and we just had to learn really fast to do it. So in double quick time, uh, and I was, you know, I was motivated to do it anyway, but because I had this direct personal experience of my friend that I thought, you know, this would be the magic bullet for him. Of course it wasn't. Um, he ended up rattling because he'd take a cocktail of drugs and 
he's been here for 35 years or, or he was here for 35 years afterwards and it is testimony to the ingenious uh, you know behavior of scientists and professionals that we've managed to conquer some of these diseases so that was particularly probably the high point of my early life and then I won a prize from Richard Branson uh, for writing a, an article on leadership and uh, that led to doing a load of work for Virgin eventually for him giving me a, uh, an interview for a book so uh, that was very uh, that again was another accident I seem to uh, profit from accidents more than most people but uh, that was yet another accident. Interesting. And uh, Richard Branson is very focused on uh, on bring more creativity. He's a definitely he's a trailblazer in in everything. So um, to be that the the way he wanted to work with him, I guess it tells a lot on how your creativity and science and music was all very powerful and interesting for his kind of business and the way he thinks. He's a very, I guess, very open-minded. I don't know him personally, but... He is very open-minded. I think that's one of the hallmarks of Virgin. I do a talk called The Virgin Way, which is based on sort of work, having worked in some of the Virgin businesses over the last five years since I won the prize. I've done quite a lot of sort of free work for, for Virgin and it gives me an insight into how the culture works and, and uh, people ask me, you know, how can we transfer that to their business? Well, we can't just plug it in like a memory stick, but we have to think about, you know, whether they're open themselves. So he is terribly open. Um, but actually, I didn't I didn't persuade him that I you know, to do this by him understanding that I was a scientist, a business person or a musician. Um, he invited people to write an article about their parents. I remember him writing his article, a soppy article about his uh, about his parents, and he said the apple doesn't fall far, far from the tree. And he invited people to write articles about their parents. So I wrote one about my dad called Dear Dad. But um, since I do write for a living, the first thing I did was in the first sentence or perhaps the first paragraph, I pointed out that my mother was 45 and my dad was 67 when I was born and that my mother, who was occasionally prone to exaggeration, pointed out that I was a virgin birth. <laughs> so within the first line, and I, I'm sure that probably just tipped it over the edge. I mean, so I employ, I, don't, I didn't design that, but I thought, well, how will I, you know, try to impress in the first line. And I think one should always think about if, if one writes articles is to get people's attention, actually. And uh, I, I don't know to this day. He, I'm hoping he found the whole article fascinating, but I'm sure he kind of thought, I'd better read the rest of this one. Yeah, you definitely, it was a very intriguing production. But that wouldn't have been enough to get the interview for him. I then went on to do work for Virgin Pro Bono for three or four years, uh, doing events for them, writing for them on their website. So this was all free. So when I asked for the book, I, the other thing for entrepreneurs is really important is ask uh, when, you know, later once you've proved value. So I had done a lot of things of Virgin over four or so years before I asked, would he mind giving an interview? And I do know that he doesn't give many. So I was very privileged to get that interview, actually. Uh, but it always shows there is often hard work. And we draw the parallel of the X factor of people say, well, they just phoned up on Friday and then they're on the show on Saturday. Usually it's not true. Usually there's years and years of hard work 
sitting under Britney Spears' success is a very good example, actually. Uh, she was a child star. And, you know, when people say, oh, she just got lucky, you know, luck needs preparation. And uh, I think that's very, very true for most entrepreneurs as well, is do the work before you ask the difficult question. Awesome. awesome. And as far as I know about Britney, she didn't have a childhood because she was pushed in this music business very young. So, And sometimes that's really hard for people. I mean, they become quite stressed over that. I mean, the, the, the violinist, the Japanese violinist, whose name escapes me, it come back to me, his father was an absolute slave driver upon him. I mean, I'm surprised he you know, managed to get through it. So, um, you know, that sometimes it can be really hard, actually. Mm. Yeah, because uh, you wonder, what one is the, the time that the person wanted to become a musician and when was imposed to them from their parents? Yeah, exactly. So, um, um, so it's very, it's very difficult, therefore, to generalise about what makes success. Yeah, you can have talent, but if you don't have opportunity to use that talent, you may not. It may not be realised. Mm. Um, so it's back to the, what I said: that some people are thrown into a ditch, stay in the ditch. Some people get out, and it's not easy to understand. But yeah, you. So some degree of confidence, I think, is is important. Some degree of determination matters, and often a mentor or you know what you might call a therapist, you know, someone along your side to keep you going in hard times because as i said keeping going when it's when you're busy is easy but keeping go keeping going when you're not busy is probably what separates people that go on to be serial entrepreneurs yeah yeah i totally agree with you and peter what does your future hold Ah, it's a difficult question on a day like this. Um, I can tell you about today. I'm going to do some gardening, and then I'm going to write a couple of books or start keep writing the books. But I don't think you meant it in quite that way. Yeah. And I will be going out for a cycle ride for a 20 mile cycle ride if I can fit it all in. Uh, but I'll work this evening on the books. Um, but in general, um, I'm continuing to do the consulting I'm, I'm now doing what we're doing here of doing some of the work that I can do online with my clients because they want obviously business continuity as far as they can manage so I'm midstream in some projects uh, I'm going to write another book on leadership um, and I hope to keep going uh, till the same time as my dad did which was 78 I don't see age as a great barrier to to what I do um, so I will be doing this but I may well be now doing a lot of this work sort of online I have a project with a group of people in Yorkshire called the Centre of Management Creativity that is about leadership for a completely different age and we're working on building leaders for sustainability uh, to make you know, save the planet uh, to deal with the difficulties we've experienced with populist, pro uh, pop populist politics all around the world and to deal with all the kind of world opportunities and illnesses that sort of it's a, it's a very broad agenda and uh, we're inviting people who are, feel so minded to connect with us who feel that they have the ability to to lead people in a good way rather than the sort of um, you know do what I say way because we need a, a whole lot of leadership um, to get us through this mess 
and afterwards we will need to look back and learn from it. So I do have a project that I'm uh, involved with in uh, in that regard. So I, I shall be quite busy, I think. Yeah, but it's good also, as you said today, you're spending some time in the garden because we need daylight and we need some contact with nature to keep also sanity. Is it going back to the roots? Uh, literally back to the roots, actually. There's quite a lot of roots in my garden. Um, <laughs> some plants that I don't desire to have in the garden, which we call weeds. Um, but uh, I did a good lot of digging yesterday. So, uh, But we need to unroot a lot of what's wrong in the world as well while we're at this and they they are what we call in business consultancy terms wicked problems and people turn away from them because they seek easy answers to difficult problems we are now about to have a perhaps a wake-up call to realize that we should be more in touch with you know the, the whole system and we should look a little bit more after mother nature and uh, that's still possible then to go about our business and do things better. Um, but we, we may have to learn some new tricks actually in the coming months and years. Yes, because Mother Planet is our home at the end of the day. So if we don't take care of it, uh, I yeah. always say, well, if it's good for the planet, it's good for you. If it's not good for the planet, it can be good for you. Yes, we're, we're only tenants here on the planet. We're not, uh, we're not staying very long. Yeah. And we should live in a better state than when we arrived, actually, is a, is a measure of our existence, in my view. That's a very powerful. Yes, I agree. Thank you for sharing this amazing pearl. And I totally agree with it. Uh, I, well, really I, I think it. you're doing on an individual level with, with therapy, actually. Yeah, because we need to be more... The thing is, in my past, I kept buying stuff. I thought that happiness was somewhere out there and I felt empty and I felt those gaps with stuff, with shoes, with friends and whatever. The thing is, now what I learned through therapy is we are good enough as we are. And once you discover you're good enough as you are, you really need less stuff. And it's like... I. I my mission now is to teach people that they're good enough. Sorry. No worries. <laughs> that they're good enough as they are. So we don't need to fill our wardrobes with stuff. We don't need a collection of watches. We need a beautiful watch we love. We need clothes we love. But this will also, on a longer scale, people will be less impactful on the world. Because if they buy only stuff they wear and love, then we don't have clothes with now we you said at the beginning that um you know could you explain how you use music uh, lyrics and titles or whatever you didn't say that but you said you know how could you use music and i said well i don't just sort of quote the titles but i'm now going to break that rule and oh. i'm going to point you could have learned that uh, much earlier in your life by listening to the beatles can't buy me love or you could have learned it from Prince, uh, one of my great heroes musically, um, because he's money don't buy you happiness, but it's shown enough pay for the ride. <laughs> the research. Um, so um, we need to relook at our relationship with a lot of things that, uh, and I do say in the last book that, that uh, the capitalism has possibly gone past its design point, but the opposite doesn't work either. 
Um, we need more purposeful capitalism, whereby we ask the question, what do we do with our profit? How much profit do we make? And then what do we do with it? Yeah. So I think rebalance capitalism. Uh, we seem to have this binary thing that is we swing from one extreme to the other, but we need to find a better balance whereby it's linked with profit and purpose, which I think after all is what uh, Richard Branson and Virgin are a particularly good example of, not the only example, but we need to look more to that. And Prince said something very wise about that. Um, so uh, there we have it. So I've now I've now broken my own rule about using song titles <laughs> to say important things. But that's the thing when um, we don't set things on stone because we there is always the exception made the rule. That's my belief. Absolutely. And as you said, the society, Western society, was always pushing people to buy a bigger house, more fancy car, and it's more, 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 more. Instead, the happiness is like right here, right now. And for example, even Warren Buffett, who is one of the richest men in the world, he is living in the house where he's been living all his life. And it's a very modest, humble house. But the thing is, we, we shouldn't chase for this fade happiness is within us that's what i'm trying to say so if you think happiness is out there in a relationship or in stuff don't do that happiness is within us guys so and as paul uh, sorry peter just said it's the um, it's all about us we can be happy within ourselves yes absolutely i do agree uh, and peter would you mind sharing with us three tips for success? Oh, this sounds like get up early, go to bed late and find something that you do uniquely well that somebody wants. Um, but I probably can come up with uh, a couple more. Um, I think that increasingly in the, the world of machines and in artificial intelligence, if we're to succeed as human beings, we need to value what we uniquely do as human beings, which is emotional intelligence. And that requires us perhaps to learn rapidly. So that the first thing is emotional intelligence. The second thing is to learn rapidly from experiences. And the other thing which I'm really bad at actually um, is the thing called resilience, that when life kicks a bit of sand in your face, don't catastrophize about it. Don't go into a terminal nosedive, kind of learn from it and move on quickly. It's what I think in some fields is called the sumo method of yeah. shut up and move on. Um, but it should be shut up, learn and move on because it, sumo on its own implies that you just move on. But in, in our greatest sort of, ad, in adversity, we often learn more than we do in success. So slumo doesn't work as a phrase, but we should learn from, from things. And I think, yeah, we, we shouldn't always take things so personally if, when, when setbacks occur and someone gives you feedback because we get a lot of feedback all the time now on social media not all of it is entirely pleasant uh, so we should we should actually get balance and find ourselves and see what what it is that we've learned from uh, life's challenges I think is perhaps a thing to think about yeah, yeah. that was amazing Peter um, if somebody wants to have your services how can they reach out to you uh, they can get in touch with me. Um, my website is uh, Human Dynamics 
but if they type in human dynamics, Peter Cook, they'll find it easily. It's humdyne, H-U-M for mother, D-Y-N for November.co.uk. Uh, that's my sort of serious side. My sort of slightly lighter side for the keynotes and coaching and other things is the Academy of Rock, which is an academy of rock with hyphens. It's not an Irish frockery. The Academy of Frock. It's Academy <laughs> of Rock with hyphens in it. Uh, .co.uk. Uh, or you can find me on YouTube under Academy of Rock and various other places. I, you know, I'm on most social media. I'm on Twitter at Academy of Rock. Uh, I use that as my sort of calling card for most things. Awesome, awesome. I will also put all your um, contact details in the description of the podcast and of the video. And I just fancied sort of, um, since we've been mentioning Prince. for you to take the time and have this amazing interview and uh, thank you and I'm looking forward to um, to anybody who will ask questions um, to contact you Absolutely. And, and I wish everybody a very good day thank you for listening bye everyone <laughs>